Miss our kiddos to either nursery or pageant practice. So kids, if you want to head out the door, you'll have leaders there waiting for you. And if you would open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Now, don't let this title scare you away. Some of you are like, i got to get out of here now. Angela and I once wandered into a, a church that was actually a cult, but we didn't know it. We were college students. And we wandered in, and it got really creepy really fast. And everybody was so, like, over-friendly, you know? And uh, I think they were all related. Anyway, uh, I said, I think we left our lights on. And, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and they're like, no, you can stay. We're like, no, I'm pretty sure we left our lights on, and we just ran out. So, so uh, don't let this title make you say, hey, this sounds like, uh, well, I don't know what's going on today. I think I left my lights on. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Proving Christ. And that is based on what we find in Acts 9, where it says that Saul grew in strength, proving that Jesus was the Christ. I suppose you could say that last week was a form of apologetics. This week will certainly be within the category of apologetics, as will the following week. And today I want to try to attempt to make a teleological argument for the existence of some kind of Christ figure. Um, I want to make a teleological argument for the existence of some kind of Christ figure. Now, we mentioned briefly last week that the title Christ was a kind of shorthand for a special kind of super king, and I think that's a pretty good ground-level way of explaining what we mean when we say Christ. We don't just mean a king, we mean a kind of super king, And this category of one ring to rule them all, so to speak, was well established in the ancient mind so that when the claims that Jesus was this super king came onto the scene, those people understood what was meant by it. Remember, these are people living in under the days of Caesar who would have claimed to be a super king. And and Alexander the Great isn't that far back in their historical rearview mirror. So they have this concept of a king that rules over all the kings. And when it is said that Jesus is the Christ, that word Christ implies this idea of a king that rules over all the kings. And the only reason that I was able to help Craig find that passage in Daniel is because I've been reading Daniel, and I'd like you to read with me Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, as a definition of or a description of, of what people would have thought of when they heard the phrase, the Christ. And and the shorthand of that is, as I said, some kind of super king. And you can see that in this verse, Daniel 7, verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ and we use the phrase super king, we're referring to something that the ancients would have understood, this idea of a king to come 
to be the king over all the kings. Now, I promised in last week's sermon that I would do my best to to hit at any presuppositions at work, uh, just to be honest and also self-aware about them. And last week, we dealt primarily with two presuppositions. We asked, was Paul a historical figure? Did he really exist in history? And we asked, are the scriptures a reliable historical account of events that occurred in that day? And so if you'd like the answers to those questions, you could go back and listen to that message. The only presupposition that I think I need to deal with initially here is, was Jesus a real person? Was Jesus a real historical person? Or is he merely a compilation of mythological creature figures all crammed into one person, one fictional person named Jesus? And I won't spend a lot of time on this simply because it doesn't merit spending a lot of time on it. Really, the consensus across all realms of belief, uh, people who are secular, people who are not, everyone at this point, uh, at, at the level of serious consensus anyway, I wouldn't say everyone, at the level of serious scholarly consensus agrees that Jesus was indeed a historical person. And so the next question that might be good to ask is, did Jesus see himself as a super king? Did Jesus see himself as a super king? Well, here, here's what I would say to that. Almost all of his preaching pertained to the kingdom of God, something he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So um, he sure talked a lot about a kingdom, right? And in fact, Pilate asked him if he was the king of the Jews, and Jesus responded that his kingdom was not of this world. In other words, yeah, I'm a king, but my kingdom does not come from this world. So what do I mean when I say that I'm going to make a teleological argument for Christ? Well, what I mean is, is that the, te- the word teleological just breaks into two Greek words, teleo, which means the end or the aim or the goal, and, and, and logos, which just means uh, explanation or reason. So tele- teleology looks at an object and begins to think about what this object tells us about truth, about its purpose, and so on and so forth. Now, if you've had any exposure to apologetics, you'll know that most teleological arguments within the Christian realm of apologetics have to do with cosmology and, uh, and, and biological complexity. So, so you've probably heard someone talk about something like intelligent design before, and you've probably also heard someone talk about the Goldilocks phenomenon. Or maybe you've heard it described as the fine-tuned universe. It's the idea that we as a planet and as a universe in general seem to be extraordinarily precisely poised to be the kind of place that can habit life. So that's kind of the most common teleological argument. It's, it's looking at the details in biology or it's looking in the details of physics or astronomy and saying, this seems to imply causation. This seems to imply creation. Now, uh, I like the biological arguments okay, because I kind of understand those a little bit. I understand the idea of irreducible complexity in, in, in like chemistry and something like that. Like, I, I think I can get my mind around that. I don't really know what I think about the arguments about the fine-tuned universe because I don't really know if we know enough to say that we are unique. Um, maybe we do, and it might just be my ignorance. I, I just don't know. I, I personally wouldn't be able to bring that to you as an explanation or a proof of God's existence. 
But more than that, my second problem is, is that it would only get you to theism or to um, a simulation, a universe, simulated universe hypothesis or something else. Like, like making a theological argument that says the world is precariously balanced and so on and so forth, and therefore it, this, this is not accidental, um, only gets you to the point where you have ancient aliens, um, God, and um, a simulation theory all kind of in the balance. And I'd like to go further than that as a Christian pastor. I'm a Jesus guy. And so that argument is fine, I think, but it's not, in my opinion, the preferred teleological argument. My preferred teleological argument is actually in the realm of politics, which is somewhat relevant right now. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to help you observe some political phenomenon and see that there is indeed a need for a kind of universal political figure to reign over the affairs of human beings. Um, uh, I don't know if we have enough data, as I said before, to support this idea that we are hyper unique in the, in the universe. Maybe we do. But I do think we have enough data by observing historical political events to make some general kind of conclusions about the way this world runs. And then to see that these ancients were correct in hypothesizing the need for a super king. So that's what I'm going to try to do today. If you're a Christian, this is one of those moments where you just kind of take a step back and you just say, Jesus is pretty cool. Uh, if you're not a Christian, this is what I would say is a sort of, uh, a, a sort of give me a better alternative to what I'm presenting to you today as, as, as sort of a way of explaining all the data we have about historical governments and politics and so on. So I'm, I'm running through three observations. And the first, ones, first one, and I'll support these in a moment, is that humans were created to be ruled by some kind of king. And king is just a stand-in for a government. But you know, there's always somebody in charge. So humans were created to be ruled by some kind of king. Um, every existing king has been weighed and found wanting. Every existing political solution that has ever emerged in the history of the world has had serious gaps, serious errors, serious insufficiencies. And here I would say this sort of points to the need for a king in the same way that a bad father somehow makes the need for a good father all the more obvious. You know, a bad father doesn't disprove the, the, the need for fathers. A bad father proves the need for good fathers. And I think if we look at the historical data that we, can, that we have lots of access to uh, about politics and government for thousands and thousands of years, we can say um, we need to be ruled by someone, and all of the people who have tried so far aren't very good at it. And number three, that... These two problems together seem to reveal the need for this idea that is presented in scriptures of Jesus as a kind of king above all kings. So just one day away from the election, one full day, in attempting to make this teleopolitical argument, I want to show you that Christianity, even if you decide, even if you're not yet convinced that Christianity is true, I want to show you that Christianity is a 
viable, in my opinion, superior system of political philosophy. That's, that's the idea. And that this idea that there might actually be a king over all the kings seems to be hinted at when we look at all the data. Okay, in order to do this, I need to turn your attention to a 17th century philosopher named Thomas Hobbes. And you know him because your favorite cartoon is Calvin and Hobbes, and he is one of the two people in Calvin and Hobbes. He is one of the two names in Calvin and Hobbes. By the way, I just realized that the teacher's name in Calvin and Hobbes is Mrs. Wormwood, which is really interesting. Yeah, so so uh, Thomas Hobbes, while he was in self-imposed exile in France, awaiting the end of the English Civil War, in 1651, composed his best-known work, and that work is called Leviathan, the matter, form, and power of a commonwealth, ecclesiastical church, and civil government. So I promised you for weeks in advance that we were going to, on this day, take a look at some way in which Jesus filled philosophical categories. And for some of you, you're interested in philosophy. And so I would just tell you, that as I, I'm interested in philosophy, I read philosophy, and, and as I look at philosophical data, most of the good stuff is not about theory of color or consciousness or so on. Most of the most uh, understandable and helpful works, whether it be from Nietzsche or Rousseau or Marx, all of that is political philosophy. So we're going to be talking about political philosophy today. Okay, So let's talk about Hobbes. So first of all about Hobbes is he, he's, he's, he's observing the civil war that's taking place in England. He's observing it from afar. Uh, Thomas Hobbes had an irrational fear of being burned at the stake, although maybe it wasn't so irrational back in the 1600s. Uh, <laughs> so he's hanging out in England while the, the civil war is happening. And this is the civil war between Charles I and the Puritans. And this is Cromwell and all that kind of fun stuff. And he's hanging out in France and he writes this book. And the place he starts when he starts writing this book is he says, I want to think about what the natural state of a human being is. So the first place he starts is something he calls the state of nature. Okay? And he's like, what is the natural state of nature? And he, he asks this question, what does man look like in the absence of all laws? What does man look like in a state of total freedom? And he concludes... In the first place, I put for a general inclination of all mankind a perpetual and restless desire of power after power that ceases only in death. So Hobbes believes that the natural state of the human heart is a constant craving for power to to get what it wants to get, basically. He describes this world that didn't include any laws, where everybody had total freedom to do whatever they wanted to do, would be a war of all against all. So, so the idea is, is that even if you're the strongest person in Lenexa, Kansas, and you get to get all the stuff you want to, you're the, you're the top warlord, well, then all, all we need to do is get like 20 weaker versions of you to gang up on you, and now you're, you're over too. So it's a state of war of all against all. That's how Hobbes describes it. And he says that this life of total freedom would be continual fear, danger of violent death, and the life of man would be solitary, poor, 
nasty, brutish, and short. Okay? So all of this lines up pretty well with the biblical description of total depravity. In fact, so much so that I would say that if you're still having trouble deciding if Hobbes is right about this, you ain't a Calvinist. Uh, that's, this, this seems to be lined up pretty well with the biblical description of total depravity. Yet Hobbes asserts that humans also possess rationality and that they will want to live even if it means sacrificing some freedoms. So they give up some freedoms out of the desire to have more predictability in their environment. And then he comes up with a philosophy called contractarianism, which just means people form contracts and covenants with one another that's sort of like, hey, if you don't kill me, I won't kill you. And those emerge out of, out of sort of the word, out of an agreement of some kind. And one way to think about this is like, let's say you and you're in this total state of nature and there are no laws. You have an avocado tree in your backyard and your neighbor has a mango tree in their backyard. We're definitely not in Kansas, right? Uh, you get tired of mangoes. He gets tired of avocados. And so you make an agreement to not kill each other for the tree, but to trade with each other. So there's a covenant, a contract that's created. So Hobbesian contractarianism is just this idea that people are crazy in their thirst for power, but rational enough to know that nobody wins in this perfect state of nature where total freedom exists, and therefore people make deals with each other uh, to provide some kind of predictability and, and so on. And now you can trace this back and just say, like, well, that's what government is, right? That's, that's what a government is. A government is... Uh, formalized agreements between people not to kill each other for their mangoes. Okay, so he proceeds from there, from the nature, the, the state of nature, to the need for a sovereign, and he makes this observation. Covenants without the sword are but words and of no strength to secure a man at all. So I want you to think about your mango neighbor, and you're the avocado person. Um, you guys make this agreement, but what's to keep your neighbor from killing you anyway. Like maybe he just gets tired of the ratio of the deal or something. What's to keep him from breaking the deal? What's, what's to keep him from burning down your tree? Hobbes sees that this, this total state of nature needs someone to oversee it. Somebody's got to enforce the rules. And he says that covenants or contracts without the sword are but words that have no strength to secure a man at all. So this idea is, is that this, this desire to agree together so that we aren't all dead in 20 years, so, so that we're not living this, uh, this uh, warlord kind of existence, this desire to work together creates a need for someone to be the arbiter of the agreements, for someone to be the enforcer of the agreements. Okay, and so he says the solution for this is something he calls the Leviathan, and the Leviathan comes out of the book of Job, and it's a sea creature. But what he's saying is, is that it's this idea of, of the, a head that is the state and a body which is the people in the state. So look at the next. This is the cover of the book. And I tried to blow this up as much as possible. And some of you that are closer can see it more clearly. Here is your sovereign. Here is your king. And he holds on one hand the power of the state and then the other hand the power of the church. But look at his body. His body is composed of all of the people living in his country. He has absorbed them 
And he now stands as a sovereign or a king over everyone. And he wields the sword, enforces the contracts, and so on and so forth. This is, so as far as philosophy goes, a lot of it gets really weird and foo-foo and abstract really fast. Hobbes has stood the test of time because he successfully predicted that this, the need for someone like this, is going to be universal and timeless. And indeed, he is correct. That's the thing about all these other philosophies. Even Plato's Republic, or especially Rousseau, Rousseau, uh, these guys, they're writing utopian concepts. Hobbes, this is, this is the evening news. Like he, he was reporting on a predictable, reliable phenomenon that we all know instinctively is true. So here's the thing. We get these guys, and I'm just going to call him a strong man, but I don't mean strong man in a bad way. I just mean a strong man. We get these leaders, and sometimes they're okay, like Lincoln or Churchill, but most of the time they're not okay, like Hitler and Stalin uh, and uh, you know those guys and Mao. Sometimes we get okay ones. Some, most of the time we get terrible ones. But here's the thing. We're always going to get one. Now, this is so key at this particular moment in history. We need to understand that we are, in, in, in particular slices of governmental history, it doesn't look like there is a need for a strong man. It's always a lie. There's, we're always headed to the next strong man. That's inevitable. This is the most reliable, predictable development in political history. We will always be moving to someone who absorbs his citizenry and wields a sword, and wields the power of morality. This is just the way life is. And because that's the way life is, my argument is that it is the way life is, but we don't see any suitable candidates ever emerge that are really capable and competent to do this. So that's a teleological argument that I just made. The political history of the world demonstrates the need for a strong man And it also demonstrates that we haven't produced one and we've had quite a bit of time to do so. Not not a real one, not not the right one. So the world seems to be built to function with a king and the record seems to show that all the kings fail. And so this seems to point to the need for this category that the ancients had packed into the word, the Christ, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, so on and so forth. Let's leave this image up while I read Daniel seven thirteen and 14 to you again. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and with his kingdom, and his kingdom, Uh, shall not be destroyed. So here's what I'd like to suggest. Hobbes, in using purely natural reason, discovers the need for a king to rule over people. And the only person that seems to fit the bill and the way we need him to fit the bill would be both God and man. 
So I, I want to do this now. I want to give you six distinctive qualities of Christ's kingship. And I want to try to show you that what, has, what, we, what we find in Christ is the key that unlocks the door. This, this, this puzzle that hasn't been solved in every human government for thousands of years, we find in Christ the solution to the puzzle. We find in Christ the answer to the problem. So I just want to, uh, these are not in any particular order, but these are six things that Christians believe about Christ and specifically tie into frustrations we all experience and, and, and people have experienced for thousands of years in the political realm. So the first one is something we've talked about a lot, and that is the diverse excellencies of Christ and the Goldilocks phenomenon as it pertains to rulers. Earlier I said that there's this, uh, I, this, this theory this idea that we are in a fine-tuned universe, and some people call that the Goldilocks theory. If we were a little too hot or a little too cold, we couldn't have a habitable life. Well, that's probably true, but I know what's even more true, and that is there's a Goldilocks phenomenon when it comes to leaders. Like, our leaders are either always too hot or too cold. And so you could just go through history and just, like, get two columns and be like, uh, weak and strong. And you got Neville Chamberlain over here and Hitler over here. You know, like you could just keep sorting these out over and over and over again. What this tells us as a historical overview is, is that we have a Goldilocks kind of problem when it comes to leaders. We have a problem with leaders who are either uh, too strong or too loving. Let's just use those two categories as potential descriptions. And you just see this time and time again. By the way, this is the same problem with everybody's father wound that they have, right? Like, like our parents aren't perfect, and so they're one or the other, and they cause, you've, you've felt this pain, either by a parent who was overly one or overly the other. Very few of us have had, you know, perfect porridge parents. Um, surprised that came out so well. But the idea, conceptually, portrayed by the scriptures, is that Jesus is this, as John Edwards says, you know, this this, this, this collection of excellencies which don't seem to be compatible with one another. So Jesus is utterly, utterly strong. But he's super patient and kind and meek. Jesus, Jesus has authority. And he wields that authority with grace and mercy. Jesus is all about the truth. And he's all about the love. And these things in human beings appear to be incompatible with one another. We're, we're, we're all just like strengths and weaknesses, right? We're all two sides of one coin. And, 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 and if you're super loving, then there's probably some weaknesses on the other side, right? So too are our leaders. This world is being, this highly complex world full of human beings who are highly complex has so far been driven by monkeys, <laughs> Like, chimpanzees have been driving our world. They're, people without sophistication. And I, don't, I mean, I can pick great leaders, I can pick poor leaders, but all of them really lack, really lack a sophistication we all intuitively understand is necessary for the proper dominion of this complex world. So one interesting piece is, is that Jesus is presented in the Scriptures as being a person of diverse excellencies. And we would look at the world and say, yeah, we need... We need leaders who are both of these things, and there don't seem to be many of them. 
Uh, second uh, idea would be diversity of ethnicities. So one of the issues that you'll come across when you study political philosophy is, is that Thomas Hobbes, for instance, he could figure out a system of government that works okay for a bunch of white people who all speak the same language and all have the same culture. But he can't solve the problem with England and France fighting, or even England and Ireland fighting. One of the intractable issues of, of hostility in our world has to do with ethnicities and cultures. So what's, what's interesting about that is that uh, if, if you have any kind, you could start out as a, a homogenous uh, racial country, but if you have any kind of favorable immigration policy at all, pretty soon you're going to have different ethnicities as part of your culture, right? As part of your country. And those different ethnicities are going to see things differently, and you're going to start to have tensions emerge within any particular country. And this is, this is a tale as old as time. This happens over and over again. And then if you do something really stupid and evil, like, say, grab a bunch of Africans and ship them to the southern United States and force them to be slaves, well, then you've just inserted another level of problems at the cultural level. So this idea of having one king rule a country works if everybody's the same color and speaks the same language and has the same culture, but almost no nation ever stays that way. But one of the interesting features of Christianity, and this comes through loud and clear throughout the whole New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we're about to hit the, the, the hard part, the, the, the meat of it. One of the interesting things about Christianity is, is that Christianity actually claims to be capable of, through Jesus, through the power of Christ, breaking down dividing walls of hostilities between different cultures and ethnicities. And this is the main story of Acts. And this is the main story of the Apostle Paul. Earlier in Acts 9, we saw that this was a part of God's call in the Apostle Paul's life. He will be my instrument to, to bring my name to the Jews and the kings and the Gentiles. So one of the claims of Christian kingship is that he alone, through the gospel, has the power to tear down dividing walls of cultural hostility, which would be nice. I think we would all agree that that seems like... Is that in the news at all right now? I'm having trouble remembering. Number three, dual citizenship and the phenomenon of Christian compatibility with existing government structures. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, so far, to the, to the person who is not a Christian, this idea that Jesus might be the king of everything sounds a lot like the kind of thing you might find in a self-published book for sale at a gun store, you know? Like, it, it sounds like, okay, come on now, what? You know, I, I stole that line from a, a book that was just published. But, but you know, like, this sounds really kooky. Like, what? Wait, hold on a second. You're saying that, that there can be one king, and, you know, what does this even look like? And, you know, do we all have to get the same haircuts? And, you know, like, what, what, what is going on here? But it's important to understand that when we talk about Christianity as a kingdom, it has proved time and time again to be compatible or to be able to exist within another country or kingdom. So citizens of any country right now can make Jesus their true Lord. Indeed, citizens in many countries right now have made Jesus their true Lord. They do not renounce their citizenship in that country when they 
claim Christ. In fact, the Bible tells Christians of every country to pay their taxes and pray for their earthly rulers and to seek and live to seek to live quiet and peaceable lives. Many of the first Christians in the New Testament were soldiers who fought for Rome. So here's the idea. When we say that Jesus is the king over everything, we 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 begin to ask like what does that look like? How does that work? Well, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to suggest a practical thought about that toward the end of the message. But we have to say that just as we observe Christianity taking root at the beginning of its origin, it doesn't seem to be incompatible with any particular country. Not at least initially. You've got to remember that Christianity emerged out of two wildly different schemes of government simultaneously. And to this day, there's a billion Christians or something in the world uh, that claim to be Christians. Those are scattered throughout so many countries. So there's, there's another interesting piece here. Within the Hobbesian framework of just one king and so on and so forth, what you're going to get is you're going to get kings fighting against kings and kings, you know, so on and so forth. But what if Christianity and putting Jesus as king actually has the capacity to coexist in wildly different countries or cultures. So number four, deliverance from vices and the problem of positive liberty. This is a little complicated and I'm running out of time. The government can forbid others from hurting others. Right, so so if you want to uh, if you want to drive down the street today and turn left or right, you should have the freedom to do so, and the government should create that freedom by making sure that one part of the road isn't blocked by mostly peaceful protesters. Like you should you should have the freedom, your freedom should be open, and that would be by making sure that those who would do you harm are arrested or or you know, taking care of. That's negative freedom. That's what the government exists to do. The government exists to make people, to keep people from killing each other. Right? But here's a problem. What if when you're going down the end of the road and you, 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 you could either turn left or you could turn right, you have to turn left, not because anyone's forcing you to, but because you're addicted to nicotine and you got to go get a new pack of ciggies. What's going on there in that description is also you not having freedom. You don't have freedom, but the freedom that you need would have to happen and, bring, and come about within you, not without you. And here's where governments go crazy. When governments try to legislate morality, they always wind up being tyrannies because they try to get inside of us and tell us which thoughts are okay. And which thoughts aren't. And which appetites are okay and which appetites aren't. And when they go that far, we are into an Orwellian context, right? When the government decides that if you really knew what was best for you, you would do X, Y, and Z. And then tries to enforce that using the only tool they have, which is the sword. Well, now we're officially in some creepy places. This has been the primary problem of government for thousands of years. 
You can keep people from killing each other, but you can't keep people from killing themselves. And when they start killing themselves with addictions and, uh, and Twinkies, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with the, heap, the, with, the, with the broken piece of humanity you've got here who broke themselves. And if you decide to have any kind of system to care for them, well, now suddenly you're incentivized, like, well, maybe we need to figure out a way to, not, to, not make, to make them not want brownies or cigarettes or so on and so forth. And now you've got a government attempting to legislate morality. So if you were to look at the one pain point of politics for thousands and thousands of years, it would be this problem. You cannot get inside the heart to rule it with traditional governmental uh, tools. Well, Christianity is very interesting because Jesus is really not looking for a particular territory other than your heart. It's the one thing that no one else can rule that he claims not only to rule, but that he will rule if he so chooses. Jeremiah 31. This, this is not thought of usually as a kingly kind of statement, but it totally is. Here you have a king saying, I need you all to like, like obey the rules and want to obey the rules. And listen to the solution in Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So earlier we discussed Hobbes' state of nature. And here's the crazy claim of Christianity. The, the crazy claim of Christianity is, is that Jesus changes people and changes their state of nature. And makes them no longer craving after the power that Hobbes describes. And, and that brings up the next point, which is number five, dominion through denial and the possi possibility of sacrificial ascendancy. I would like to encourage, I think all of our older people have this sense already. It's built in after you get a certain age and take enough punches. But I, I would like to suggest, especially the young people, that you should never take a religion or a truth claim seriously that does not explicitly want to rule the world. Okay. So don't take a religion seriously that does not explicitly claim to want to rule the world, which means there's a lot of churches you can't go to, okay? Because we'll say that. We'll say, no, that's, that's what we want. We want the whole world to know Christ. That's, that's, we'll say that. Don't trust one that won't. Here's why. First of all, it's possible that they're not convinced that they should. Or secondly, it's possible that they want to, but they're lying, in which case, no. Number two on this is, don't assume that every religion's version of a ruled, ruled world looks the same. So, 1985, Tears for Fears, song, everybody wants to rule the world. That's true. What ruling looks like is different for different truth claims. So, if Islam rules the world, that'll look like one kind of thing. If wokeness rules the world, That'll look like another kind of thing, a lot like Islam. And if Christianity rules the world, that'll look like another kind of thing. And so this idea of dominion through denial is uniquely Christian. And that is simply this. Consider how Christ chose to coronate himself. Consider how Christ chose to validate himself as the king. You know how he did that? Dying on a cross. 
how how would a Christian how would a Christian people advance throughout the world by killing others? No, by dying to self. This is a very interesting thing that's not ever kind of shown up before, and it seems to be catching on. For the last two thousand years, we've been kind of ascending. We started out as twelve. And what the, the, the heart of this is the cross. The heart of this plan for dominion is to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. The heart of this is husbands laying down their lives for their wives. Like the heart of this dominion of which we speak is not to put other people on their knees and threaten to either count, cancel or decapitate them if they disobey. The claim for us is to look at our own lives, look at the sin in our own lives, take it seriously, seek to serve other people, die to ourselves, and that's the plan for Christian dominion. And I predict, wholeheartedly predict, I would bet my house on it, I don't have a house, I would bet anything on it, that one day a whole bunch of people are going to be like, we really liked it when the Christians were trying to take over the world. We like their plan to rule the world better. Number six. Divinity and the de facto perspective of Hobbesian authority. So Hobbes, one of the more controversial, but I think absolutely true statements he makes, is that sovereigns, kings, do not need to justify their existence other than by merely demonstrating that they can control people through either fear or enticements. Basically for Hobbes, if you're the man in charge, you deserve to be in charge because you can be in charge. So that's called de facto authority. If you're in charge, you're in charge. So here's the question. If Jesus winds up actually being God, if Jesus is divine, then isn't he the de facto authority whether we like it or not? And that question will not be answered today. Uh, as I said last week, I believe that he is. But next week, we will look at the historicity of the resurrection, and we'll ask this simple question. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Is that, is that historically um, provable, reliable, something like that? Because if Jesus is actually God, then he is the de facto authority, period. And all of these wonderful ways that he is the authority actually are just icing on the cake because he could be terrible and still be in charge. Thankfully, he's not. So... Practical question for all this we'll conclude is, okay, so you're telling me that Jesus is this super king. He's the king of all the kings. That's happening now. His kingdom is now. But so is America and China and Cambodia. Like, how does this work? How does this work? How, how, can, how can there be one king? Is Jesus going to end all the other kings? And then it's just one king. Are we going into a theonomy? This is a hard thing to explain, but I think the best way I could explain it, and to some of you this might, you, this is going to hurt a little bit, but, but uh, you know how capitalism is basically the universal law of the world now? Would you agree with that? Like, like among huge swaths of countries, um, you've got all these different nations, and they all have their own constitutions, and they all have their own rulers, and they all have their own systems of government. But there's this almost this secondary language or commitment amongst many countries that, that is capitalism. And so there's like 
a bunch of small entities, countries, hundreds of them, and they all kind of do their thing in the way they think they should do their thing. But there's this overriding thing that has occurred, trade, commerce, capitalism, and it winds up creating almost in some ways another government on top of all the governments. That's what I would say what, what Christendom looks like in the future. Is that as Jesus successfully, because we know he will, successfully seeks and saves the lost, as he progressively seeks and saves the lost in China and South Africa and Zambia and so on, there will be these nations. The goal isn't to eliminate nations, but these nations will be united in a common system of agreement, and that system of agreement is Jesus is our ultimate and true king. That, that would be uh, my effort to explain practically how might this work. I would say that it's already happening in another respect. We're already sort of agreeing at a higher level and operating in a secondary government now called capitalism. And I want to leave you with this. In 2016, around 138 million Americans voted for the presidential election. And I'm reading that the numbers this year might be higher. So what will happen to this country and consequently the world if Joe Biden is elected on Tuesday? And what will happen to this country and consequently the world if Donald Trump is elected on Tuesday or January, whenever we find out? Well, it's so much of a secondary question to the point. And I think, I really think if you were sincere about this, this teleological argument might get you somewhere in your consideration of Christ. Because let me ask a third question. What would happen to this country and by consequence the world if 138 million Americans made Christ their king? I believe we're in a perfect political moment that is forcing us to renew this category that the ancients had all along. All of these kings aren't good enough. We need a king over the kings. We have, in all of our lifetimes, seen extreme limitations of our leaders. Most of us have gone to the ballot box repeatedly holding our nose. But we... We don't hold our nose with him. We're really glad he's in charge. And we expect that this in chargedness of Christ will continue to matter more than everything else. Let me pray for us.